today. I've got a question. How many of you guys have been to uh, to Seattle? All right. Now, how many of you saw the sun when you were there? So not not everybody. My uh, my one of my aunts lives out in Seattle and been out there a couple times. And I remember the first time we went, it it just it rained. You know, it was like classic Seattle weather the whole time, just dreary gloomy, foggy, gray rain the whole time. And the whole time I was like, why would anyone want to live here? Yeah, they've got lots of cool stuff, um, but it's just so depressing. And then like the day we were traveling to the airport, like driving down the highway to get on a plane, the sun came out and I was like, this is a beautiful place to live. And I bring that up because today's passage, today in Isaiah, is like Seattle, right? We've been in kind of doom and gloom for the first 34 chapters of the book of Isaiah. Sure, there have been points where kind of the light has broken through the clouds, but for the most part, it's been kind of depressing. It's just been judgment, 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 judgment. God's going to judge these people. He's going to judge those people. He's going to judge Israel for this. He's going to judge them for that. Um, and when we get to Isaiah chapter 35, it's like the, the sun comes out and you recognize, uh, what it is that you've been trudging through that doom and gloom for. Um, and that's, that's only going to keep happening more and more as we go through the rest of the book of Isaiah. So the rest of the book of Isaiah, it's, it's not like Seattle at all. It's, it's like Florida. It's, it's nice most of the time. Um, and so I want to, want to read Isaiah 35 with you this morning. Um, and then we'll, we'll talk about, about what this has for us today. He says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good. And that you come and save your people. God, I thank you that we see you doing just that all across the pages of the Old Testament. We thank you that we get to look back on on the Gospels and the New Testament and see that you came in the most significant way 
You sent your son to be born as a human being, to be made like us in every respect so that he could be a substitute who could live the life that we couldn't live, who could die in our place, paying the penalty that we should have paid. God, we thank you that he rose again, proclaiming his victory and, and your victory over sin and death and Satan. God, we thank you that you have come and saved us. We pray today that even as we remember that, that you would cause us not to forget that you are still coming to save us. That we are waiting for everlasting joy. We are waiting for for sorrow and sighing to flee away pray that you would help us, that you would send your spirit to to strengthen our hands and to make our feeble knees firm and to keep us on the way of holiness. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So there's, there's three things we want to want to look at with this passage this morning. The first is we kind of want to come at it from a, from a high level and, and ask questions about kind of what this passage is doing in the book of Isaiah. Like why, why is it here and, and how does it kind of serve the purpose that it has in, in the book and the overarching prophecy that Isaiah is giving to these people. Then we're going to come back and we're going to look at the details of the passage. So we're going to look at it at a high level and we're going to zoom in, talk about the details, and at the very end we're going to talk about how this passage might apply to us today. And so from a high level, what we need to understand is we need to understand the what and the how of this passage. So, so what is this passage there for? Like, why Isaiah 35? Um, and then the how is, is how, does it, how does it accomplish that purpose? And I think the first question, the, the, the what, like what's the purpose of this passage, is pretty easy for us to answer if we actually stop and think about it. And so kind of imagine with me that uh, instead of singing you know, and talking and drinking coffee and eating donuts that you've spent the last little bit of time reading Isaiah 1 through 35. How how do you feel other than tired of reading? You know, it's hard because it's been spread out over a long time for us. But if you just kind of packed all of Isaiah, the first part of Isaiah into a big chunk and read it, you'd you'd feel sad. You'd feel kind of bummed out. Uh, you, you would have you would have gotten you know those those parts where the light broke through and hey that's that's good news, but then immediately gone back to bad news and bad news and bad news and bad news and bad news. Then what if you read Isaiah thirty five, the the light coming through, the sun shining, seeing the the beautiful expanse of what God is doing in history? Uh, hopefully you feel better, right? Feel happier. Like if if you read one through thirty four. And then 35, you'd feel a little bit better. But if, but if instead of reading 1 through 34, you just read 35, you'd be like, that's a really good passage. Man, Isaiah is, is a happy guy. But what about the people that are actually hearing his prophecy? You know, it's, it's one thing for us to think about reading it. But like, imagine yourself with your family holed up inside your home in Jerusalem, knowing that all around Jerusalem right now, there is the biggest, baddest, worst army on earth ready to come attack you. 
and you remember this guy named Isaiah that came to your city again and again and again and he said, repent because judgment is coming. Don't live the kind of lives you've been living because judgment is coming. Turn and return to God because judgment is coming. And then judgment comes. And you're sitting there and you're worried and you're stressed and you're fearful because you know that everything this guy has been saying is true. You feel hopeless and and helpless knowing that there's nothing you can do to avoid the judgment that's coming. This is where Isaiah 35 comes in. Because even though he's been giving them glimpses and hints and whispers all along about the salvation that's coming after the judgment, now he comes in and he pours it on. He tells them judgment is going to come, but so is salvation. God is going to come and save you. And so the point of Isaiah 35 is to give those helpless and hopeless people the hope that they need. Put your hope in God because he's going to come save you. And so he's telling them to, to strengthen and to prepare, knowing that right, God is going to come and save them after that. And the, the way he does that is by pointing them to the fact that God is salvation. Right? They, they are helpless. They are hopeless. But their Lord isn't. And if they put their hope in him, their hope's not going to be in vain like it was when they put it in Egypt and it was when they put it in Assyria and it was when they put it in themselves and their foolish leaders. So that's, that's what he's doing. Um, he's trying to cause them to trust in God. Um, and so how does, he, how does he do that specifically? He tells them that there's this, this thing coming. God's going to come and save them. But the question that we need to ask is, is when's that going to happen? Right? What's this, this hope that he's giving them? God's going to come save you. All the events of this passage, when is it going to happen? Because if, if you're in your house, you're in Jerusalem, the Assyrian army's outside, that's what you want the answer to. You want to know, when is God going to come save us? Because right now, things look really bleak. And so there's, there's really two answers to that question. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the two peaks of prophecy, right? How Isaiah sometimes looks at a mountain and he sees a mountain, but he doesn't realize that there's a bigger mountain behind it. This passage is, is like that. There are, there are two kind of fulfillments of this promise that God is going to save him. So one is obviously way in the future. The last time we were in Isaiah, we talked about Isaiah 35 or 34, which was like judgment all the time for everyone, for everywhere, for all time. Right, It was talking about the, the final uh, judgment that was going to come at the end. This passage is kind of like the flip side of that coin. It's him talking about this, this final salvation that's coming at the end. And so how long do they have to wait for it? The first answer is forever. They've got to wait until the end. They've got to wait until God brings salvation in its fullness, you know, finally overcomes and overturns sin, death, and Satan to the fullest extent that he possibly can. So that sin is no more. So that sorrow and sighing flee away. So that, so that he's, he's encouraging them that that salvation is coming. It's, it's, it's far off, but it's there. But there's also a closer mountain. There's a more immediate fulfillment of this prophecy. God is actually going to come in their lifetimes to save them. And we get the hint of when that will be at the very end of the passage in verse 10. He says this. He says, And and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing 
Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So he's saying the ransomed people of God, God's going to kind of buy his people back. They're going to come back to Zion. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. And they're going to sing and celebrate and they're not going to be sad anymore. So this verse is telling us that God is going to come and save his people by bringing them back to the city uh, and they're going to be happy about it. What's the problem with that? problem is they're already in Jerusalem. So, so how is he going to bring them back when that's where they are? The reason why this can be is because of what happens between where they are now in their homes holed up in Jerusalem surrounded by Assyria and where they will be when God brings the ransomed people of the Lord back to Zion. There's going to be time passing. And in that time passing, what's going to happen is God is going to come. He's going to deliver them from Assyria. They're going to make more mistakes. Then Babylon's going to come and Babylon's going to destroy the temple and destroy the city and carry them off into exile into a foreign land. And they're going to be there trusting in God, hoping in God, trusting in promises like he makes in Isaiah 35 that he is going to bring them back to Jerusalem. And then he's going to do that. And we're going to see that in, in the rest of the Old Testament as the story unfolds. So the point is that God is going to save them. He's going to save them fully and finally at the end. He's going to save them in the, on the closer mountain as he brings his people out of exile back to their land and to their city. But the reality is, is that in between now and then, they're going to experience a whole lot of judgment and a whole lot of suffering and a whole lot of discipline. And I think that's really important for us to see because this isn't false hope. Right? This isn't Isaiah coming to the people who are worried about the threat that they're facing and just kind of painting this rosy picture. He's not saying everything's going to be all right. You know, trust in God. He works all things together for the good of those who love him. He's giving them that truth, but he's giving them the reality of, hey, exile's coming too. That's going to be awful, but he's going to bring you back. And there's going to be joy and gladness and sorrow and sign will flee away. It's going to be worth it. And any sorrow and sign that you're going to feel in between now and then is going to leave the instant that he brings you back to himself and to your city. And I think that when we give people the hope of the gospel, we should give it to them like Isaiah does. Right? It's not all sunshine and rainbows. The Christian life is not easy. We are going to suffer. We can't have our best life now. Because we're broken and this world is broken. And so we need to hold out for the hope that we have that's in Christ and the fact that he is going to come and save us fully and finally at the end. That's what Isaiah is doing in this passage. He's giving them the good news that God is going to save them. But he isn't giving it to them in a vacuum. He's giving it to them in light of the bad news that he's already given to them. And the fact that some of that is still going to come true for them. So let's look into the details and see specifically how he does this in this this chapter. In the first two verses, he talks about the the wilderness and the dry land being glad. He says, "The, the, the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Whatever a crocus is, it's going to blossom like that. 
It's going to blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. He says, this, you know, the glory of all these wonderful places, Lebanon, Mount Carmel, Sharon, that's going to be given to the wilderness and the dry land, a place where you're just like, that's, that's a desert. It's barren. It's, it's boring. It's going to become this wonderful place. I think what he's actually talking about when, he, when he's talking about this, this unfruitful, unproductive place becoming fruitful and prosperous and productive, I think he's talking about his people. He's saying they're going to be who he designed them to be all along. They're going to bear the fruit that he calls them to bear. They're going to live the kind of lives that he calls them to live. They're going to be the people that reflect his glory instead of this kind of boring desert wasteland uh, that is worthy of judgment. And so he calls his people because of that, because God's going to do that to them. He tells them in verse 3, strengthen your weak hands, make firm your feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. These are commands that he's giving to them. In light of what's coming, in light of this hope that Isaiah is giving them in this passage, this is what they should do. They should prepare, right? Strengthen your weak hands, make firm your feeble knees. He's he's telling them to get ready to march. And later he's going to talk about this way of holiness. He's telling them to prepare themselves for God's salvation. This is like in the New Testament when it talks about Christ's return. It tells us to wait expectantly. Right? Waiting on God is, is not a passive thing. Waiting for God to come save us is not a passive thing. It's not us just sitting on our butt and saying, well, you know, I don't, I don't know what to do. God's going to come save me. You know, like people who are struggling with a particular sin and they say, God, you know, if you, if you really didn't want me to do this, uh, you would miraculously deliver me from this temptation right now. Instead of standing up and leaving the solitude that you're in and going to be with people or praying or reading the Bible or singing worship songs or doing anything other than sitting there thinking about how you don't want to be tempted. Waiting on God is an active thing. This is what he's calling them to do. He tells them why at the end of verse 4. Be strong and fear not. Why? Behold, look, see, your God will come with vengeance. He will come with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. He's telling them to prepare for action because God is going to be who God is and he's going to do what God does. He's going to show up and he's going to save them. And once that happens, verse 5, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man's going to leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute will sing for joy, waters will break forth in the wilderness, the burning sand's going to become a pool, thirsty ground springs of water, uh, the haunt of jackals is going to become reeds and rushes. What he's talking about here is, is, is really similar to what he was doing in verses 1 and 2. He's talking about these great reversals that are going to happen. It's going to be the opposite of the way that it was before. And language like this is used throughout the Old Testament to talk about what it's going to be like when the Messiah comes. When this Redeemer that God has been promising all the way since the book of Genesis, as he's saying that God's going to send someone to save you and, and redeem you from the curse of the fall, it uses language like this to say all of that is going to be overturned. It's going to be reversed. It's going to be completely different. It's going to be backwards. And I hope that as we read that verse, you thought about the New Testament. Right? I hope you thought about, hey, Jesus does those exact things in the Gospels. The, the, the eyes of the blind are opened. 
The deaf do hear. The lame do walk. Right? The mute speak. These things happen. We see Jesus doing those things. And the reason why we see Jesus doing those things is because he's the one that's been promised in the Old Testament. He's the one these passages are about. And so when he comes and he does those things, he's telling everyone around him who would have been familiar with these passages, hey, that salvation that God promised is here right now. Because he's there and he's that salvation. He's beginning in the Gospels. He's beginning in us to overturn and undo the effects of the fall. He has come to save us. He is coming to save us. And we get to experience tastes of this reversal now in our lives. Verse 8, he talks about a highway. A highway is going to be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. And the unclean aren't going to pass over it. It's going to belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, those who walk on the way, they're not going to go astray. So there's this highway. Um, Sinful people won't be on it. It's only those who belong, only those who trust in God. And they're going to stay on it, right? Even Even if they're morons, they're going to find their way which should be immensely encouraging to us. It says, No lion's going to be there, nor any ravenous beast. They shall not be found there. So God's people are going to be on this highway. They're not going to get off it, and they're going to be protected on it. No enemy is going to come against them, but the redeemed shall walk there. Redeemed means to be bought back out of something. So again, he's talking about what's going to happen when he brings his people back to Jerusalem. He's going to bring them out of their uh, slavery and their servitude and their kind of second-class citizenship in a foreign land. It says the same thing in verse 10, the ransom of the Lord shall return. They're going to return on this highway. They're going to come to Jerusalem with singing. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads and sorrow and sighing will flee away. God is going to bring these people back and they're going to be passive travelers. Right? They're, they're, they're kept on this highway. Everything that could stop them from making progress on it is kept away from them. What they're called to do is to strengthen their weak hands, make firm their feeble knees, and walk and, and travel and participate and make use of the what God has done for them, the, the salvation that he has brought. That's what Isaiah is trying to do for these people. In the midst of a hopeless and helpless situation, he's coming to them and talking to them about what's coming next. It's going to be a while. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be discipline. There's going to be judgment in between where they are now and when that salvation is coming, but it's coming. And so he's telling them to gird themselves up and prepare for the salvation that's coming, knowing that that God is going to bring them back. And he's telling them this now so that as they go through these things, as Babylon comes after Assyria, as they are carried off into exile, so that they can retell these promises to themselves and to their families and tell them that God is going to come and save them. Even though it seems like he's not, even though it feels like he's not, he's going to come and he's going to save them. And he's also going to come in the distant future. 
and make it so that Babylons and Assyrias don't exist anymore. Make it so that exile doesn't exist anymore. Make it so that the things that they've experienced with their families don't exist anymore. He's going to save them from their present circumstances and from all bad circumstances in the future. And so what do we do with this passage? Right, We're not in a city surrounded by a foreign army. We're not, at least I don't think so, going to be carried off into exile into a foreign land. Still, I think the call for us is the same. Right? We are called, just like Isaiah's heroes were, to trust in the future salvation that's coming for us. To put our hope in that and not in ourselves, not in our own abilities, not in our own strength, not in anything that we might trust in other than God. We're called to put our hope in him and the fact that he is the only one that can make our, all the sorrow and sighing go away. Sure, there are things on this earth that can make it go away for a short time, but it always comes back. Only he can make it flee forever. (coughs) We're called to trust in the God who keeps his promises. Just like Isaiah is calling them to. But I think for us, that this is, 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 is ramped up a whole nother level. And the reason why is because of where we are. We're not where they are. We're not just completely looking into the future, you know, seeing this, this one mountain, two mountain. We're in the future. <laughs> right? They have to look wholly to the future and trust in this Messiah that's going to come. We get to look back. We get to look at verse 5. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. And instead thinking, hey, that's going to be cool one day when that happens. We get to look back and say, God kept this promise. We have story after story after story after story of him doing these very things that he said that he would do. And so for us, our hope should have a much more significant foundation of faith because we can look back and see all of his promises uh, have already been fulfilled in some ways in Jesus. And so we have so much more to put our hope in than they did. So the question that we should ask ourselves is then why do we find it so difficult to do so? If we really can look back and have this firm foundation of hope, why do we give our hope to so many other more fragile and more worthless things? They pale in comparison if we actually stop to think about it. We actually looked at this passage, Isaiah 35, about a year ago when we were in the book of Hebrews. When we were going through Hebrews, we got to chapter 12, which is when uh, the author of Hebrews stops kind of saying the same thing that he's been saying the whole time, which is that Jesus is better. And he begins to say, like, well, what do we do about that other than just, you know, be amazed by Jesus? And so he begins to give, give commands. And he uses uh, verse 3 of Isaiah 35 to make his point. Um, and, and what he's doing is he's calling us, he's calling his readers to, to keep running the race with endurance, to keep trusting in Christ, to keep uh, living by faith, to keep doing what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. And he uses this passage to communicate to his people, God is coming to save you. And so 
Prepare yourself for that coming salvation. Strengthen your weak hands. Make firm your feeble knees. Get running on the race because Jesus is better, because he has come, because he has saved you, because he is coming to save you. Do it. And I think that's what this passage has to say to us today. Is it hard for us to put our hope in God? Yeah. Do it anyway. Right? Make your feeble knees firm. Exercise. Work out. We do that not just with our bodies, but spiritually. Right? How, how often do we say, you know, like New Year's resolution time, I want to have a better prayer life. So I'm going to pray for four minutes. And then I'm going to get distracted. That's hard. Facebook's easy. 2019, year of prayer. I'll get to it then. Or I'm going to read my Bible more. Reading's hard. The Old Testament's boring. Uh, Sometimes the New Testament's boring. Sometimes we're tired and sleepy and we don't want to read. Sometimes we have other books that we want to read more. It's hard to, to get into one another's lives with each other. I don't want to open up. I don't want to share. I want to keep certain things back for myself and not let the light of the gospel touch. I'd rather just stay at home and watch TV than spend time with other people who are going to require things of me. And if we just keep doing the same things, we're going to keep doing the same things. It's when we force ourselves to start exercising that the soreness and the trouble and the apathy and the lack of desire go away by us just keeping doing it. And we need to do the same exact thing with our our, 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 our life of faith. It would be great if it was just easy, if it just came naturally. But it doesn't come naturally because we're sinful, broken people. The only thing that comes natural to us is selfishness and sin. Which is why when we don't intentionally do different things, that's what we do. And so this week... I would encourage you to look for practical ways in which your hands are weak and your knees need to be made firm. I would encourage you to have a conversation with somebody else about that. Ask the people that are closest to you what your blind spots are. Ask your your wife, your husband. Say, what are ways in which I'm failing to obey God? I bet they'll have an answer or two. And then we keep running the race. Because we know that God is coming to save us. We know that he's going to keep us on the way of holiness, even if we're fools. He's going to protect us from threats from outside and threats from inside. We know that he's coming to save us because he already has. Jason's going to come and he's going to lead the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you did come, that the blind did see, the deaf did hear, the lame did walk, the mute did speak, that that even now, 
you are in the process of making all things new. And that upon trusting in you, you begin to do that in us too. Pray now that you would help us to to be moved out of our familiarity with what you've done for us. You'd restore to us the joy and the astonishment that we had at our salvation in the beginning. That you would cause us to marvel about the reality that you have saved us. And that you would use that foundation of faith to help us to put our hope fully in the future salvation that you're bringing. Not just at the very end, but later on today. Pray you would send your spirit to to meet with us and to, to challenge and encourage and convict us. To show us where we need to be made strong, where we're weak. I pray that you would give us the the faithfulness and the obedience to train ourselves for godliness. In your name we pray. Amen.